think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. It is the last episode of 2018, and we're pretty excited about it. We got to talk to uh, Lillian Barger, who wrote a really great book called The World Come of Age. Um, it's an intellectual history of liberation theology. It's from Oxford University Press. Uh, it's a really neat kind of tracing of the ideas behind liberation theology, which I think is cool for us because we're always talking about kind of material conditions um, around them, and they are not separable, as uh, Lillian <laughs> goes out of her way to help us understand. Um, but yeah, we're getting close to 2019, uh, the end of this year. We really did it. Um, so that's cool. It's the coolest. We survived a year. <laughs> uh, yep. Um Good luck next year with the primaries, I guess. Um, one more uh, prefatory note. Uh, there is still time to register for the class that I'm teaching um, in January. It starts the second week of January. It is called Organized Religion, Christianity, and Anti-Capitalism in the U.S. and Canada. It's online. You can take it from anywhere. It costs $67 uh, in U.S. dollars, $90 in Canadian dollars, which works out to like 5 bucks or 7 bucks per class. Um, so it's pretty cheap, and it would be really great if people signed up uh, to take it. The more people I get uh, to do it, the more of a case I can make to teach more classes like this. Um, so use that money you got from your aunts and uncles this Christmas. Uh, <laughs> buy it as a, a late gift for somebody that you forgot. Um, everybody's going to be thankful for it. So jump right in. Cool. Let's go to Lillian. This week on the Magnificast, we're talking with Lillian Barger about her book, The World Come of Age. Um, Lillian, thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Usually uh, when we start off, we just ask everyone the same exact question, and uh, we're going to do the same for you. Can you just give us like an elevator pitch for your book? Um, what's it about? Why did you write it? Well, uh, my book is a history of the origins of liberation theology, which is a radical and religious motivated intellectual and social movement that swept the Americas in the 1960s and 70s. And 
the reason I wrote it was because I thought that they made some very interesting arguments about theology and religion and also my own personal background. In terms of their arguments, they were they they came to believe because they were radicals, there were radicals and there were theologians combined. Um, they believed that um, theology and, and religion had become a legitimizing force for oppression. In other words, the oppression of black people, women, and poor people, and other oppressed groups was being supported by religious ideas. And so they wanted to go after those ideas and think about how to recast theology in a way that was liberating to, to those people. And so they reimagined theology, and they did it in a very profound way that I think changed theology forever. The other thing, too, was that they believed that that by listening to oppressed people, they could learn something about God, which was really new. It wasn't just theology. It wasn't just about, you know, professional theologians in a seminary or in a church office. It was uh, theology was happening on the ground. People were were thinking about God and they had ideas about God that were needed to be listened to and made legitimate as a theological uh, proposal. Now, the reason I wrote it, my own personal reasons for it, is I was born in Argentina. I was an immigrant to the United States when I was eight years old. I didn't speak a word of English when I first came. And I, uh, so I've, I have been looking at America from very different points of view that most uh, Americans who were born here have looked at it. First, I, I came with a, I had a Latin American perspective. I have experience, uh, deep experience in Latin America culturally and language-wise and many other ways and religious-wise. And also in the, in the 1990s, I began to really get curious about women's history, and that led me to reading uh, feminist theology. And I noticed that when I was reading feminist theologies in the 1990s, that they kept talking about, they would bring up Latin America liberation theology, or they would bring up black liberation theology, but they never really uh, explained how these were connected. And I was interested in knowing how are these theologies connected? A little bit more research, and I found out that these theologies, Latin America, Black, and feminist theologies, usually are thought about as separate things, and they have their own you know, groups that study those particular theologies. And I wanted to look to see what is it about these theologies that first they have in common, and second, what is the historical condition that actually made these the theologies sort of emerge at the same moment, historical moment? What was it about the Americas? What was it about the late 1960s and the 70s that would have these theologies sort of emerge independently from each other, but connected in some way? And that's what I wanted to explore. That's a really great introduction. Uh, your book does so much work. I mean, we're going to have to unpack a lot of it as we go. Um, but one one of the big sort of valuable things that you do, I think, is to uh, to trace it as both an intellectual and social history. Um, we'll get into that in just a second. But I want to talk about the way that your book starts in the introduction, which is really fun. Uh, you jump into the problem of kind of thinking about liberation theology by giving a list of uh, like historic right wing responses to it. Um, and a lot of them have to do with these suspected conspiracy theories between liberation theologians and Pope Francis or, or in the world generally. Uh, why do you think that liberation theology draws so many suspicions of things like conspiracy or these, you know, um, background plots or something like that? Uh, and I guess maybe as sort of a, a bonus question, do you have a, a favorite conspiracy theory about liberation theology? Well, liberation theology 
it's about the con- the historical conditions from which from which it emerged. In the late 1960s or 1960s was a very a turbulent time in the Americas. You had revolutionary movements all over uh, Latin America. There were that was a response both to the Cuban Revolution and it was also a resistance to the American empire and American control of Latin America politically and economically. And in the United States, you know, you had the Black Power movement, you had the feminist movement, you had all these movements that were very radical that actually, you know, were a challenge to the status to the status quo. And the U.S. government was very involved in the Cold War, and which was uh, trying to, you know, uh, not, uh, trying to stop the spread of communism, both in Latin America and all over the world, and in the United States. And so, what happened was that. Uh, because uh, liberation theology theologians were so close to revolutionary movements, because they joined le- revolutionary movements and supported them, they were quickly identif- uh, identified as being their Marxists, they're dangerous, and that label, particularly the Latin Americans, that label of Marxism was pinned on them in a way that they would never really shook it off. So it is. Part of it is the response of the U.S. government to Latin American revolutionary movements and its con- and the connection that la- uh, theologians in Latin America had to those movements. That's a helpful way to help us understand those links to conspiracy theory. I mean, do you think that, okay, so like the, the right-wing sort of uh, conspiracy theories that you lay out at the beginning are um, accusing liberation theologians as uh, as being like Marxists or, or whatever. In some cases, though, the, like, were, were they? <laughs> The thing about Marxism is a really complicated uh, uh, label to apply to something. You know, uh, Marxism can mean many, many things. The Latin American theologians uh, particularly did use Marxist analysis. In other words, they thought that Marx had made some good analysis of how society is structured. And they used that analysis. Now, at the same time, it does not mean that they were full-blown Marxist communists. Some of them were. Some of them weren't. They worked with communist uh, groups because they felt like we will work with anybody who is for freeing people. And so that close connection uh, labeled them as Marxists in a way that was uh, a negative thing. Instead of really thinking about how did they use Marx and why why were they connected to, to Marxist groups? Because oftentimes they were the only option in Latin America for something different. Adding that nuance to the conversation is really helpful, I think, for parsing some of these critiques out. I mean, the the critique of them being Marxist is one that even, you know, is perpetuated till today. Um, so that's helpful. And it's actually a very easy way to discredit them and not listen to anything they said. They used Marxist analysis, but they said a lot of things that, you know, that is not the only thing they did. But, you know, it's like when you, once you call somebody a racist or, you know, a sexist or, or a Marxist, you've pretty much kind of closed the conversation and you basically say, oh, I don't have to listen to anything they say because they're coming from a from a, the wrong position. And I think that that is just a, not helpful because it really hides the many things that they said that were very important that that weren't really about Marxism, other things that they said. Yeah, sure. So that's uh, definitely a part of the intellectual history of liberation theology. And uh, that is also the subtitle of your book, An Intellectual History of Liberation Theology. Um, could you talk a little bit more about maybe like what the adjective intellectual means here in the subtitle? Right. There's two ways to look at this. First, 
most of the work that has been written about the historical work that has been written about liberation theology really puts a little fo a, fo a lot of focus on the social movement on the ground, okay? And I think that's fine. The problem is that we have not really thought about the ideas. Most people don't even know what liberation theology is. They uh, they use it. It's a really it sounds good. You know, you can throw it around, but people really don't understand where it came from, what they were trying to do, and how it's complicated. It's not just a simple, you know, be nice to poor people. It's more than that, way more than that. In fact, that's not even in their premise. Uh, so it's not the social gospel. It's not just about social justice. It's more profound. It's about theology. It's about how we think about God and how that implicates our politics. So anyway, one of the reasons I did this was I wanted to look at the ideas that are in uh, liberation theology, the complex of ideas, where these ideas came from historically. And second, I want to look at theologians and their intellectuals, religious uh, radicals who were, uh, they were intellectuals, they, they, they were talking from inside the, the uh, uh, theological establishment that had been trained in European seminaries and American seminaries. All these theologians that I talk about were highly trained, and uh, uh, they understood theology that they had been given, the classic theology they had been given, was not responding to the need on the ground. And so they believed that they had to reformulate theology so that it would be useful for, to free people. I, as an intellectual historian, I have a, I have a particular sort of bias towards Ideas. I believe that ideas are foundational. That the ideas drive action. That ideas can. That how we think about the world, how we see other people, how we see God, really affects how we are going to then act. And there's, you know, like three ways you can change change the world. You can do rescue work, which we know what that is. You know, you can feed the hungry and you can meet the immediate needs of somebody on the street. And that is a rescue work is something we've been doing forever and needs to be done. And thank God for the people who are doing that. You can do reform work, which is go out and reform the institutions that we currently have. You know, can advocate for changes in law and institutions. And that needs to be done also. But there's another foundational work that has to be done. And that is on the level of ideas. We have to. Un we have to deconstruct the ideas that are holding up an unjust system, because as long as those ideas are operating in the background and people are not aware of them, we will continue to reproduce the same sorts of structures. So that is why I'm sort of committed to ideas and kind of, un you know, examining them and thinking about them. And, and the liberations were really good at deconstructing and rethinking theology and how we all think about God. Yeah, I think that's really helpful and interesting for us on this podcast, too. I mean, we talk a lot about materialism, and both Matt and I come from a Marxist background, despite or because of the fact that we're both Christians, however you want to sort that out. Um, but usually, you know, we sort of come at liberation theology and other things from that kind of vantage point. Um, and we spend a, a bit less time uh, on kind of the... Um, the narrative of ideas that gets uh, sort of told within uh, liberation theology. Also, I guess, because we're not theologians <laughs> per se. Um, but I guess I want to ask you a question that helps um, helps us understand your project from that perspective a little more deeply, too. Um, so, like, as you trace the influence of these ideas, 
Um, you also point to like some specific historical events. Uh, so a couple that you mentioned are like the Haitian Revolution, um, later on the Cuban Revolution, and of course there's there's plenty of others. But those are two that we've been talking about on this podcast not too long ago. Um, so how do you how do these two things and maybe others these material events um, kind of go together with the timeline of ideas that you trace um, to provide this ground for liberation theology to emerge? So because I'm a historian, I'm very interested in um, ideas, but not enough like, like a philosopher would think about it. It's an abstracted sort of transcendent thing up in the sky. I'm very interested in how ideas actually play out on the ground. Okay. And the Haitian Revolution, the reason I use that as an example, I was trying to show how oppressed people uh, conceptualize freedom and how in the process of conceptualizing their freedom and liberating themselves, they also appeal to God and they, and they, and how, and that their vision of God was not, it made a distinction between the God of the white man and their God. Okay. And, you know, we can, we can just, and, and this was not necessarily, it was a combination of both uh, Catholicism that they were exposed to plus some, some African uh, religions that they combined to to give them the internal motivation that they needed to free themselves. It's not enough to know that you that you know you're oppressed. You've got to have some means, something that's beyond yourself to help you motivate you to action. And that's what the Haitian Revolution was about. In my book, I was just trying to show it as an example of how oppressed people. Uh, were appealing appeal to God within their with themselves in order to be able to have the energy to do what they did. The Cuban Revolution is another revolution that was had huge repercussions in Latin America. It happened in 1959, and throughout the 1960s, it really spread a vision in Latin America about standing up to American imperialism. That's what that revolution was about, was trying to, un, to, to throw off the shackles of American economic and political power. And do, and do, when they did that, and you produce so many revolutionary movements throughout Latin America. These, uh, the liberation theologians, felt like, okay, we have got to question. We have to question what is the what has been the role of religion in supporting the American Empire and in the oppression of Latin America, not only from the Catholic Church but also from Protestantism. So uh, that is that's the connection that I see that that religion. Uh, has to be questioned, and sometimes it is reimagined by oppressed people in order to free themselves. Cool. That's a really helpful articulation of, like, I guess the the connection between sort of philosophical idealism or materialism and the ways that you have them kind of playing together uh, in in the physical. And it's, I think, a helpful articulation for uh, two non theologian Marxists on a podcast. Yeah, you, know, you know, the problem is, of course, you know, that when you, when you say intellectual and you say ideas, people are thinking that you're talking about some kind of abstraction and you're totally disconnected from the real on the ground experiences of people. But these are not separate things. People, people act out of thought. You think before you act. You think something. You, you think you envision something that your action is going to accomplish something. And so I, I, as a historian, I try to put these things together. Cool. Well, um, so in, in reading your first section of the book, you lay out some of the, the cultural histories that set up liberation theology. Like you have a section on, yeah, like black liberation theology and the Latin American liberation theologies. However, one of the names that sticks out to me in that uh, recounting of cultural histories is Mary Daly. Um, 
Mary Daly was like one of the first feminist theologians I think I read in undergrad. And I was really interested in her because of her feminist perspective, but also because she read Paul Tillich and that was someone else I was really interested in for a little bit. Um, However, uh, she's also a figure that has kind of like a difficult history as well. She's pretty well known for being uh, overtly transphobic, um, which is, you know, it's not, it's not unique. Um, It's not unique that, um, (laughs) you know, someone involved in liberation might have like a bad opinion because that happens across the board. Um, but how do you think that we, you know, people who are interested in liberation theology ought to deal with the difficult parts of the past that underlay the way we think today, or like, what are, what are ways we can negotiate some of the problematic stuff that comes with people, um, that we remember as being like really progressive? Well, first, um, you know, Mary Daly started off as a Catholic theologian, but, but by the early set 1970s, she basically repudiated all monotheistic religions in her book, Beyond God, the Father. So, uh, she exited uh, Christianity, and because my book is is um, about Christian theology, I she kind of becomes part of the background. I don't really go into her because she really goes into a different direction in uh, a different kind of spirit, a feminist spirituality that is non-Christian. Okay, uh, and it's 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 a different a different sort of religious thing, and and it, my book is not about that. So I she kind of. I had to mention her because she is an important in the early stages in, in really encouraging uh, many Christian women the, uh, theologians to explore the, uh, the sexist roots of their own tradition. Now, um, having said that, Regarding her view on gender and sexuality, or the, for that matter, any view that any thinker might have in the past, I think we have to. I think we have to remember a couple things. First, you can't argue with the dead. Okay, <laughs> don't argue with the dead. Uh, part of it is that Daly lived in a particular historical mo- historical moment. She had a particular uh, philosophical project that she was trying to accomplish, and we have to understand her within her historical moment. We have to understand her within the system that she was uh, developing. And I think it's really sort of uh, unfair, I think, to read her out of her context. Um, And I think in the future, people are going to read us and they're going to say, hey, how come they didn't know this? You know, we are we're living in this particular moment and we're constructing our own history right now. And we are in the future, some people are going to say that, well, we, what we did was wrong or some of it was wrong. I think we have to take these thinkers uh, in their context. We can take some of the things that they said as valid and, and, and we can reject other things. So that this is why it's so important to follow ideas instead of following thinkers. Because <laughs> when you're following a thinker, you're going to find so many inconsistencies. There's gazillion inconsistencies in all thinkers. There's contradictions. They'll say one thing and then they do something else. And you kind of wonder, how can that happen? But if you follow ideas and look at the ideas that are actually useful, that are really going to help what we're trying to accomplish today, I think that's a safer route to go. And on top of that, we need to have some humility, uh, particularly towards the past, uh, that, you know, people in the past were, were as trapped within their own systems as we are in ours. And we really don't have, we're limited in our scope. And to think that we now know better, uh, you know, is we need to be humble about that. Um, it's really interesting that you put it that way. That we sort of uh, 
follow the history of ideas independent of uh, particular thinkers, we might kind of uncover um, a more complicated or, or a broader story. Uh, it's funny because you can, I think, in the way that I'm sort of more trained to sort of look at history through this material lens, it's kind of a similar point that um, if you look at sort of the material conditions uh, that produce a thinker, you'll find all kinds of, you know, weird um, inconsistencies or contradictions that later in life uh, or later as we look back, we kind of want to keep on sorting out. Um, it's it's fun to kind of think through how those two things relate, uh, a sort of ideas-driven um, narrative of history and a, like, material or economic-driven um, narrative. And I guess uh, one way to kind of keep um, keep having you talk about this is to say you situate liberation theology in a long tradition of Christians arguing about engaging the world and about their own institutions. Uh, and for example, you highlight the argument between Luther and Munzer, right? These ideas that had like profoundly material consequences. Um, but you also look through the philosophies of people like Kant or like Schleiermacher and um, others as a sort of like way to set the stage for political theology in the 20th century. So, I guess I'm curious to hear, like, what threads did you think were, or did you find, uh, happen to be especially important in your research that maybe predates some of these uh, liberation theologies? Um, what kinds of arguments sort of emerged, maybe even like in a surprising way for you as like, wow, this was really formative um, for these later thinkers in a way that might not appear on like first glance? Well, first, I think the first thing is, is coming to terms with the fact that theology is a human practice. It's something we do. It doesn't fall from the sky. It's historically constituted. It changes over time. It's not, it, it, you know, no matter how, what anybody says, it, theology continually changes. It adapts to culture. It adapts to the moment. Continu There's so many examples of this, you know, like one of them would be abolition, you know, in the mid-19th century, you know, there were some radical abolitionists, but most of the churches and most of the people were fine with slavery, okay? Um, so, but now there's going to be very few people today who would approve of slavery. So what happened? I mean, there was theology that supported, that supported uh, slavery. It'd be very hard-pressed to find a theologian today who would use the Bible to support slavery. I know there's a few nuts jobs out there they would, but very, very, I mean, it's like they're like not even, you can't even see them on the radar. They're just a blip. So theology changes. And I think it, that scares people, you know, because what do you mean it changes? You know, because people want to think it's eternal. It's not eternal. God's eternal, but theology is what we do. It's how we read the Bible and how we think about God. And we change that. So that's the first thing. Second thing is there's formal theology that happens in seminaries as a discipline and, uh, in you know, church hierarchies. But there's also an informal theology that's going on every day. Every one of us has a theology, and we live it out every day, and we're constantly modifying it. We're thinking, well, I thought God was this, but I think now God is that. People do this all the time. That's theology, too. And I think it's recognizing that it's not just formal, but there's informal. And and we and the, the and the liberationists are very clear to point out this informal theology, they, especially the informal theology that you see among uh, the uh, oppressed people, slaves and women. They weren't accepted into the you know uh, institutional theological you know uh, institutions. They weren't they weren't accepted there. There was no room for them. But that doesn't mean they had didn't have any ideas about God or that their ideas were. Uh, always, you know, incongruent with what the church was teaching. 
that's 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 the second thing. And third thing is, all theology is political. Okay, it just is. And what I mean by that, it doesn't mean necessarily that all theology has sort of a a right wing or a left wing or a liberal or whatever uh, cast to it. It means that theology always has a political and social consequence, and that includes. The Christian doctrines that we think about, like justification by faith and, you know, election and so many, you know, all these different kinds of uh, systems that theologians have built to explain uh, Christian uh, practice and life. These things have also had uh, historical implications for all kinds of different things. That's a very complicated uh, conversation, but I just want to bring it out that they they do have social consequences. They don't just remain spiritual realities. They take on social concrete uh, expressions. So those are the the things that I really, and you can see this uh, in, um, and the other thing was also, here it goes, I forgot this. Okay, I want to talk about the fact that you know, all all the um, major movements within the United States, uh, like abolition, women's rights, civil rights, labor movements in the past, were all energized by religion in some way or another. Religion and theology have been a very important vitalizing energy for social movements. I, I would dare say you cannot sustain a movement that's going to be really effective and have the kind of profound change that abolitionists had. And they were a minority. They were a very small group of people and they were very effective in what they were trying to do. I don't think you can sustain that kind of effectiveness without some sort of religious motivation. And because people need in a movement, they need something bigger than themselves. They need something greater than themselves. They have to believe that their cause is just in a very big way. It can't just be the immediate moment. So these are the things that I, I that I thought was important in when I did my research. Uh, that's a really helpful note, I think. Um, I, I think all, all of the points you just made were really great. Um, that... Uh, you know, theology is always political. It has those ramifications and also about the sort of transcendence idea. Uh, I think there's a lot to that. Well, at the, let me see, at the very end of your book, uh, you mentioned a few contemporary examples of social movements like Black Lives Matter or Occupy Wall Street um, that might draw a bit from liberation theology or that might have that sort of energizing, um, you know, are energized by religion in some ways or in one way or another. Um, Like, for example, at my church, we have like a Black Lives Matter sign in the front yard of our church. Um, but I, I wonder what you might say about like, why do you think it's like that? Why do you think that, um, it's these types of social movements that Christians are willing to recognize claim and support like black lives matter or occupy wall street, even to some extent. And why not others? Like in some of the intellectual, in the intellectual history that you had, you know, you, you draw out these examples where, um, in Latin America, there are, uh, theologians and priests and clergy, uh, or in, uh, lay people who are willing to work with like really radical types of political figures, like, you know, actual communists or whatever. Um, uh, but why do you think that's not really the case now or, or what's happened in the the history of ideas here that has um, disconnected Christianity from some types of politics and not others? Oh, boy. OK, first, I didn't I really didn't do a, a complete thorough study of uh, all the possible radical movements, you know. And so uh, but my my goal in that uh, 
I, ha- I wanted to suggest in my epilogue, basically, that all these uh, engagements and all movements that I do mention uh, really owe a debt uh, to liberation theology, and that basically, uh, well, basically after World War II and then again in nineteen in the nineteen eighties, there was a decline. There was a decline of uh, the hemispheric left, okay, and the rise of neoliberalism that we know, and the social justice as a term was not used very much in the nineteen fifties. It was used quite a bit in the sixties and seventies and eighties and nineties. In the and, and the O's we. You know, social justice was not used that much. Now it's kind of everywhere. Everybody talks about social justice, and I I think that this is that this is really owed to the uh, the first generation of liberationists who really established the impossibility of separating social justice, um, religion, and politics. They they you can't do it. Now it seemed like they disappeared. However, I think that that they were still those ideas were still working, and they until until the the historic there's a historical moment there's a break and uh, like Black Lives Matters, uh, people don't uh, grab those ideas and do something with them. So I think these key ideas continue to reappear across the political landscape, and that's what I was trying to unpack there. As far as all these other radical movements that you're talking about that I did not mention, well, one thing about the United States and Americans, they really believe in America, okay? They believe in the ideals of America, and uh, radical, real radical movements have not... uh, uh, been very effective getting the attention of a lot uh, enough people to make their case, and uh, why the churches the churches have been very connected to the political establishment. The Protestant churches in the United States are very have been very connected from the very beginning to the political system. So there's a there's an enabling, there's a, it is very difficult to get churches to distance themselves from the current political system because they believe in it. <laughs> and until, uh, as long as people believe in the system, it's very difficult for them to make a radical break. That's a, yeah, that makes sense to me. And I, I don't mean to like, um, I'm not trying to like, I don't know, chastise you for not not like uh, mentioning some movements rather than others. I think the, you know, just mentioning Black Lives Matter or Occupy Wall Street is fine. I guess like what's interesting to me is the ways that like, like you know, th- those breaks with um, those breaks in radical politics either happen or they don't. And I guess like sometimes it seems almost like kind of random at the ways that Christians will sometimes support one movement but not support another. Like... Like Black Lives Matter is like a really pressing one for my church because I think it's like a, a moment where, um, you know, well-meaning church people are starting to see sort of like the the weddedness to um, the American political system breaking down, whereas they just don't see it in other cases. Right, and I mean, uh, you know, athe- uh, atheism, uh, the the label of atheism and Marxism on radical movements have made it very unpalatable for most most churches and most religious institutions. And that's just a long, long history that goes back like 250 years. So uh, in the Cold War, right after the war, after World War II, the Cold War, uh, the anti-communism, anything that smells like communism or even socialism, okay, <laughs> uh, seems to be against Christian liberty, 
Okay. So Christianity has tied itself to the whole idea of, uh, of liberty. And that can be understood in many different ways. But the way it's understood in the United States is the liberty of the individual. Okay. And so they will push against any kind of communalism or uh, community uh, justice. It's real complicated. And I could talk about that for three days, but. (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe that helps us to sort of pivot towards some comments that you make about secularization and uh, sort of the private and public distinction that characterizes especially liberal societies. Um, So this is something that comes out throughout your book, uh, but you sort of end the study with some really interesting observations about it. Um, What do you think that it means to say that liberation theology is a public expression of theology? Uh, And maybe how does that sort of um, problematize or dislocate uh, the many kind of liberal societies in which liberation theology emerges? Um, I mean, not all of them are, are liberal, of course, but uh, but many. And uh, maybe lastly, kind of coming off of the last question, where do you see that public expression of religion today? Like, what's the inheritance um, of problematizing that idea of a private and public distinction about religion in, in public life? Well, first, I wouldn't I wouldn't use the word public theology in uh, talking about liberation theology because that presumes that there that there's some theology is private. <laughs> Which, which totally goes against what the liberationists would say. Okay, all there is no there. You can't you can't have theology that's just you know uh, sort of trapped within the church walls or within your little house and you know your little Bible study or whatever. They would say that 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 it's all it's all in one space, public private. There that is a modern concept that we divide the public from the from the private. We all live in one unified world there, where this wall between the private and the public, it's very porous if there is one. It's very porous. They, and so I would rather say that uh, liberation theology is a political, distinctly political theology. It, it owns being political, even though it was accused by uh, people on the conservative side saying, well, you're just pol- uh, making theology political and it shouldn't be political. And they're saying, yeah, we are because it is. And your theology is political too, okay? So don't try to hide under this, oh, we we don't mix our theology and our politics. That doesn't work. You always It's always mixed up. <laughs> it, it's always mixed up. So, um, so what I wanted to say was, uh, I, I do not mean I would also mean that uh, Christ, true Christian theology, if we can if we could ever figure out what that was, is neither liberal, conservative, leftist or in any narrow sense. But I think that the kingdom of God has its own logic and it's not a politically neutral, but it's not politically neutral. OK, it has a politics. The, uh, the kingdom of God is a politic and it refuses to be sequestered within religious institutions. It can't be sequestered, and any theological system must be evaluated on how it conforms to the coming of the kingdom of God. I, that is, that's how I, I view theology uh, generally. So, and you're talking. Uh, I think is is that the answer to that question? I think so. Yeah, I think so. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I guess riffing off that a bit even more, um, you mentioned in the I guess. Uh, first part of your book uh, about the ways that uh, conservative theological positions, uh, I mean, they do definitely take up a um, p- 
political position and try to create maybe like a myth of private religion right. through personal salvation, which is definitely a political position to have yep. that like individuates people. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally right. Um, I guess like when I was reading that, I was thinking, man, if, if conservatives felt this way during the rise of liberation theology, like, I mean, it's only been exacerbated now in light of neo- like the neoliberalization of everything. Um, so I wonder what you might say, like, is, is there something that liberation theology says or has to say that might help us uh, rethink those types of personal salvation? Well, first, liberationists, you know, argued that God's transcendence was in the imminent. God's transcendent was not something out there above, beyond, that actually it was here in the here and now among people uh, within, you know, the material, social, and political conditions that people live in. So, uh Now, what's happened with uh, America has a history of individualism. Our entire political system is based on individual uh, striving, individual responsibility, individual rights. Everything is about the individual. And neoliberalism is just a an exaggeration, more exaggerated version of that. So that, you know, that is not new and it's not new to Christians. I think it's across, like I said, people uh live within particular historical moments they can't escape it and if you see christians uh, being very individualistic they're just really just practicing what the rest of the country's practicing okay and they will have a theological justification for it okay uh and so but god is god is is more interested in uh He's more interested in redeeming a people rather than just solitary individuals. And that's really hard for American Christians to get a hold of because we have been we have been beaten down with the individual's rights, individual salvation, individual a, a way of being in the world uh, and and, and, and every person is made in the image of God, and every person is precious before God, and every person is unique, but they are all embedded. We are all embedded in a community, and you cannot be saved by yourself, okay? And this is something that that um, the liberationists made a point of, because, because Black people and oppressed groups They had no choice but to depend on their communities to survive for solace and solidarity, okay, because they had no rights as individuals. So they had to go, they had to be in their churches and in their groups and their gatherings. They had to stick together. They had to suffer with each other, which is what solidarity is. Solidarity is suffering with someone, okay? It's not just, hey, I'm, I'll support you from, from back here. It's actually suffering with people. And white Americans um, refuse to suffer with uh, these other people. Uh, we may uh, offer charity. You know, we can offer charity. We can do all kinds of things to make them more comfortable. But the suffering with part, that is something we're not willing to do. And this is what we got. So I think what I'm saying here is uh, individualism really plays against 
um, solidarity. And and I think a lot of the left, uh, frankly, they're very individualistic in their own way. They may be individualists about different things, but they're very individualistic and they're not willing uh, to give up any of their prerogatives or rights or 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 discomfort or be be, dis, be uncomfortable for the greater good of a community. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, it kind of makes me want to circle back to something you said at the very beginning, just about your own personal kind of background as a way of uh, giving you a different vantage point on thinking through American religion in particular or American Christianity. Um, yeah, so you mentioned, you know, being from Argentina and being connected to Argentina in a number of ways. Um, obviously, uh, Pope Francis is from Argentina, and you mentioned some of that um, importance in the beginning of your book. Uh, yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, I mean, as much as you feel comfortable sort of sharing, uh, how that background informs um, the way that you look at these um, features within American spirituality. Uh, and then also, yeah, maybe a little bit too about how they um, how they help you understand, like, also the, the global side of, of Christianity, too. Well, first, um, I was in, in Argentina, my parents were were evangelical Christians in a country that was 98% Catholic, Roman Catholic, okay? And you have to understand a couple of things about evangelicalism back when my parents were alive and living in, uh, in Latin America. Evangelicalism in Latin America was very different from uh, evangelicalism in the United States. And because they were on the outs, okay, they were the minority, right? In the United States, Protestants, Protestants and evangelicals have been the majority, so that changed. So that changed the relationship between the minority evangelical community in Latin America to the state, because the states were very much uh, uh, were they had a you know a state religion. The Catholic Church was pretty much established all over the uh, all over Latin America. So uh, if you were an evangelical, you know, back in the fifties and sixties in in Latin America or in the forties, most of the twentieth century, you were pretty much. Uh, on the fringe, you were really on the outs, and you did suffer a lot of discrimination for not being Catholic. And so that right there, I understand. Uh, we come to the United States, everybody, you know, everybody's a Christian, everybody's Protestant, the government supports the Christians, and it's just a very odd sort of, you know, kind of relationship. <laughs> That's the first thing. The second thing, because evangelicals were the minority uh and a very tiny minority, they had to take care of each other. They were really a community. And they were very concerned about justice. My father was very concerned about justice because he had suffered injustice because he was not Catholic. And he was very concerned with that. When we came to the United States and, and we, we landed in Texas, my father was working a lot with migrant workers from, from Latin America. He was working with people who were working in chicken factories and, you know, farm workers. And, I, and as a child, I, you know, I was around uh, these transient uh, work farm workers. And my father saw a lot of injustice in the United States uh, that was uh, from deacons in the Baptist church who, you know, mistreated the people in the chicken plant. And he saw a lot of injustice, a lot of uh, people being abused in all kinds of different ways. And he, it, it, he, was, he was beside himself because he didn't, he didn't understand what kind of Christianity is this, because that was not the Christianity that he had uh, practiced in, in Argentina. So 
that background was sort of in my bones, okay? <laughs> uh, you know, my father would have said, you know, if a Christian, if, if, if justice, if a Christian is not just, I doubt very seriously if he's a Christian. Yeah, uh, thanks for sharing some of that. Um, I think it really illuminates to just like some of the issues that are at stake in the history of ideas that you tell. Um, like hearing those personal narratives um, just kind of maybe fills out some of the picture uh, about even like how complicated a lot of these things are that we make uh, much too simple. Um, maybe I could sort of ask uh, also, like a lot of people think that liberation theology and the way that it has tried to sort out um, the relationship between Christianity and justice is sort of old news. You know, like it's uh, this thing that happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and maybe it changed theology forever, but also like, you know, people have moved on or something. Um, what do you think Christians on the left can still learn from liberation theology? And where do you see it kind of still around? You know, like you make a case in your book that it's not actually old news, even though it's a historical moment. Um, but how do you uh, how do you make the argument or, you know, how, how can people understand it a little better now? Well, you know, what happened with uh, when I first started writing, uh, working on this in 2007, I was told many times, that you know, don't waste your time on liberation theology because it's dead. And nobody cares about that anymore. And I, I didn't believe that. And then in 2008, Obama was was uh, running for president and he had the Jeremiah Wright incident. It was all over the news. And, you know, oh, he's, you know, Obama is associated with this black liberationist preacher and it was a big scandal and people were making all kinds of commentary about it. You know, it, it was a, it was a really messy, ugly period. And that told me, hey, you know what? It's still there. People still, you know, respond to it, even if it's negative. OK, <laughs> people are still uh, kind of uptight about liberation theology. And then in 2013, Pope Francis becomes the pope. And what does he do? He invites Gustavo Gutierrez, which is one of the main characters in my book, a founder of Latin American liberation theology. And again, people got really upset. What does this mean? Why is he inviting this liberationist? So that those were really signs to me that I was on the right track. Why were people responding so negatively to this if it was dead? It wasn't dead. It was still there. The ideas were still percolating throughout the culture. So in, in, in terms of liberation theology as a movement, uh, the, the first generation, uh, the first generation gave way to the second and third generation of liberationist theologians who were still doing work in other areas like sexuality and um, ecology. And they're, they're expanding what the first generation laid down and they're adding to it and they're modifying it and they're changing it and they're adapting it to the particular moment. So it's still actively in terms, it's active in terms of a of a discipline, a theological way of doing things. Also within theology, it seems to me like every, theolog every theologian, I don't care if you're a conservative, liberal, or whatever you are, you have to respond to the charges made by liberation theologians. You have to respond to the charges that you know, classical theology excluded women, excluded African-Americans and other minorities, excluded poor people, that that classic theology tends to be the white male, you know, transcendent figure, okay, of God. So all theologians now really are, are affected by this change. And even if they don't say liberation theology, they have, they have to address what is the implication of what you are saying, your theology, on the social political environment. So that's one way. Uh, the second thing is just because uh, liberation theology is a, is a social movement of the 1960s and 70s didn't accomplish 
you know, their goals. They had very lofty goals of liberation for all people. Well, here we are in 2018. People aren't liberated. Okay. We still have oppression. We still have poverty. We still have sexism. So what happened? Did they fail? Well, I think we don't measure a, a, a political, a theological or a, a, an intellectual movement based on whether they accomplished the goals they set out for themselves. I think that the what they did was they changed the conversation. They changed the conversation forever, the theological conversation, the political conversation. And I think Obama and Pope Francis and now Donald Trump really, really verifies, I think, once again, restates once again what they were saying back in the 60s and 70s and that their ideas are percolated all over the place. So now everybody's talking about social justice. Nobody was talking about social justice before liberation theology like in the 50s and 60s. People weren't talking about it. They've been talked about during the social gospel era in the early 20th century. But people, you know, everybody, you know, why? Because they believed that American economic expansion was going to rise all boats. Everybody was going to, everybody worked hard. Everybody was going to get theirs. Well, it didn't happen. Okay, so now we're talking about social justice. So the, the theological establishment has been totally revamped and they have to think about things differently. And I think their ideas are kind of everywhere. I mean, people throw liberation theology around all the time as a term. And I don't know if they know what they still know what it means, but that's I'm hoping that my book will help people understand what they were actually saying. And it's not just about Let's be nice to the oppressed. It's not about going out and doing a good deed or feeding the poor. It's not about that. It's about listening to what poor people, oppressed people have to say about God and how they see God in their everyday lives. That's what it's about. That's a fundamental thing and how they read the Bible and how they hear the Bible. So anyway, um, I do think they changed theology forever, and I think that their ideas are just everywhere. And I see them all the time, and people don't know where they came from. I think that's a really wonderful way of putting it. I really do. I mean, you've said it, I think, two times now, but I, I really like that, that you keep reiterating that liberation theology is not just being nice to the poor, but it's about something different, you know, actually liberation, <laughs> uh, listening to the poor and what they have to say about God. That's a nice way to put it. Um, especially, uh, I mean, um, I don't want to speak for all churches, but I think there is a trend in contemporary, at least Protestant Christian circles to talk about social justice in a really vague way. Sure. Um, Sounds good. Whereas liberation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and liberation gives us a real, a real hard way of talking about it where there's something more to it. So that's um, really good. Well, um, your book has definitely helped me understand more about liberation theology. That's for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, I guess uh, at the, the end of the hour here, one kind of final question. Um, I wonder what you think of, the uh, responses or reactions to the death of James Cone not too long ago. Um, we talked about it with a theologian friend of ours, uh, Amoria Shea uh, Armstrong, a while back. Um, and it was really interesting to hear her talk about it. Uh, that thing you were, we were just talking about, um, liberation theology is more than just, you know, um, taking care of the poor. It's fascinating because it was, to me anyway, it was strange to see a lot of sort of liberal or progressive Christians um, started, you know, putting out... Uh, short like eulogies or tributes to uh james cone um but at the same time these uh, these same figures often sort of uh 
hold up like the standard of like liberal centrism or being a moderate or, uh, you know, protecting a certain version of, of capitalism and things like that. Um, things that it seems to me that anybody who reads someone like James Cohn seriously would have a hard time doing. Um, but nevertheless, you know, he's become a figure that's sort of appropriated by that kind of centrism. So, you know, what's, what is it, what's at stake in how we remember these kind of figures and, uh, what have you sort of seen, you know, watching these figures, uh, age and, uh, you know, become part of a different conversation? Well, on the, uh, the website, Black Perspectives, I wrote a, a piece for Black Perspectives on James Cone. Um, uh, and because I, I did meet him and talk to him and, uh, how I first encountered him and uh, my impressions of his work when I first encountered him and what I think my fi- you know, fundamental contribution. And the reason he's getting lauded and, you know, even by moderates uh, is because he did change the theological conversation. And they have to acknowledge that they're even their own theology, even if it moved a little bit, it moved. Sometimes, sometimes you have to have figures who articulate what you might consider an extreme position in order to move the middle. The middle does not move. The middle is always that, you know, going between uh, extreme right and extreme left until you have somebody, when you have somebody like Cone who was extremely in your face um, and very insistent and did not move, uh, he had to be count- he had to be dealt with. And so even the most, you know, even the liberals, even the people who still believe in some, you know, Christianized capitalism or whatever they're proposing, they all have to acknowledge uh, his real contribution because it's just too, he's too big of too big of an impact. He's too fierce to um, ignore. That's great. I think that's a good uh, sort of final thing for us to keep thinking about. Um, well, thanks so much for spending time with us, Lillian. Uh, the book is called uh, "The World Come of Age." It's from Oxford University Press. Um, you can get it right now, uh, and it is definitely worth folks' time. I think that you sort of turn over a lot of a lot of stones in the history of liberation theology that other folks don't. So, uh, yeah, uh, definitely not the last word um, on liberation theology, which is for the better, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Thanks to Lillian for coming on the show, helping us understand all these wild ideas. Uh, You should definitely go check out Lillian's book. Like we said, it's The World Come of Age. It's from Oxford University Press. It is definitely worth your time. Um, A couple other things. If you want to find us or find more information about us, you can do that online. Uh, We are on Twitter at The Magnificast. We have a Facebook group called The Magnificast Basement. Though uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I guess, is reading all of that. So, I don't know. Kudos to him, I guess. Uh, Maybe he'll learn something. Um, What else? We have a shop where you can buy stickers and t-shirts. It is redbubble.com slash themagnificast. And lastly, you can support us directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash themagnificast. Our music in this episode is by Amoria Armstrong, and the outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you in the new year. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your
your hoods up, where you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.